in our community, in our culture, mental health is, I mean, unfortunately, very, very stigmatized. At least the way I grew up, certainly, where anytime you would say words like anxiety, depression, bipolar, um, you get scoffed at and you're told to, as, as, a, as, a, as a man, work it off like, you know, you just need to sweat and it's just like, it sucks and it's, and it's, it's vile and it's ugly because that's far, that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. On this episode of Latin Equis, I speak with Merced Elizondo, a filmmaker with a fairly young career, but who is already a powerful artist and who we should probably keep on our radar. Once you watch his short film, Manos de Oro, you'll understand what I mean. It truly is such a beautiful film that deserves to be seen by many, many people. The film stars Julio Cesar Cedillo, who you might have seen on Netflix's Narcos, Sicario, Cowboys and Aliens, and more. Most recently, Manos de Oro was selected to compete as part of HBO's Latinx short film competition, where it will compete for one of three spots for a distribution deal to stream on all HBO platforms. Merced and I talk about Manos de Oro, mental health, the film industry, and more. Hola, yo soy Andrea Márquez, and this is Latinx, a show brought to you by La Red Hispana and the Hispanic Communications Network for the new generation of Latinx. We want to go beyond listening. We're ready to speak up. So join me in conversation every week as I meet Latinx from all over, de diferentes colores y sabores. As you know, a podcast is a journey, and I would love for you to follow this one. So join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinx and reach out. You can also find out more at our website at wearelatinikis.com. Yeah, so I'm a filmmaker based out of Dallas, Texas, writer, director, and producer. Um, directed three short films in the last, uh, I'm going to say, four years. Um, so that's been my journey. But um, my journey has been a bit orthodox, unorthodox, in that um, I didn't go to film school. Um, there are a lot of interesting different paths that I've taken to lead me up until this point. Um, you know, I always had a natural affinity and, and, a, and an interest in all things creative when I was a kid. Um, I was always top of my class in my English classes and writing. I, I just always knew that I loved to write. I always loved being creative and coming up with things and ideas. Um, and film and cinema was always a part of that in that I, I just, I love movies. I mean, it was just a passion of mine that I, that I knew I loved ever since I was a kid. But to be fully honest with you, I was always too chicken to major in film in college because I thought there's just no way. That's a pipe dream. Like guys like me, that look like me, that talk like me, that's not real. Like directing is, is it's lo maximo. Like it's just, there's no possibility <laughs> for me to ever even imagine the idea of me being on a film set directing. Um, but that sort of started to shift, right? After I, I did an internship in college, I went to UT Austin. You know, like I said, I'm from Dallas, moved to Austin to go to school. And I studied advertising. So I, like I said, I didn't go to film school, but I did an internship at NBC Universal in New York City. Moved out there for three months, the summer of 2015. And I think that was the push over the edge I needed to really kind of buckle up and go, you know what? Well, I see all of my friends doing what they're doing and, and following their passions. I had friends interning with Seth Meyers and Jimmy Fallon and just being in that, a part of that world that I wish I was a part of, but always was always too afraid to. And I said, well, let's just try it. Let's do it and let's give it a shot and don't look back. And immediately after that, I went into my senior year of uh, college at UT, did an internship at a production company, and things started to snowball from there. And that that was effectively my film school. I mean, they even said that in the interview, like, you didn't go to film school, you don't know, 
anything about this world, but we're going to teach you. And I'll always be grateful to them because they gave me my first chance and I'll remember them for the rest of my life because it put me down the path that I'm on now. And, uh, you know, after that, I did a, I joined a writing program at UT Austin. Then I did a, a development internship at a development company working with a bunch of networks like ABC, HBO and stuff. I graduated from UT, moved back to Dallas to do a, an internship, uh, a position at a company called AMS Pictures as a production coordinator. And that was my, my day. By day, I would be a producer, production coordinator, working on these television shows or corporate or commercials and so on and so forth. I got to write and direct and produce a lot of you know great things. But I said, well, now let me make my projects. Let me do what I want to do. And that was the beginning. And I think 2017 was the beginning of me starting my first short film, and then the next year, my second, and then 2019, Manos Dodo. So that's kind of what led me to be where I'm at now. I mean, I don't know for you, but with me, I had to, for my undergrad, I had to double major in mm -hmm. pol political science, which was like pre-law and all that, and theater directing. Oh, man. And the reason, well, I didn't even know the theater world. My first year, I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And... That's it. Like, I didn't really consider all of the other stuff. Right. One, because I don't know if you get this, but like in the Latino world, it's like, si vas a ser artista, te vas a morir de hambre. So go do something that makes sense, you know? Yeah. Or it's it not even like a Latino thing, just like a general thing, right? Like, for sure. But it's also, I mean, I think because of our culture, we know that to be a very true thing. Like, I'll give you an example. My brother, uh, who's super talented, super smart, engineer, computer scientist, like that's what he wants to do. Parents look at that and go, okay, that's a noble, stable profession. Money, income, yes, we get it. My sister wants to be a nurse, my little sister. Profession, you know, you work at a hospital, you clock in, you clock out, you have a family. Um, but I think it's it's just a matter of, of understanding and acceptance because I struggled a lot with that, you know, with trying to, like, get my family to understand what it was that I was trying to do because it was so new. Like, no one in my family had ever been an artist or a writer or this or that. It was always... You, know, you work your day job and then at home you go play with your kids and you call it a night and it's like well I don't know if I really want that life um, I like the life of an artist I like to create and um, yeah, I struggled to be honest but I think after you know my first one they they were on set with me helping and seeing that vision come to life and I, that I started to win their support and now I mean it's so great they're my biggest fans and I, and I love them to pieces because they they really really have been so supportive of me and what I'm trying to do but it took a while for sure what inspired you to do Manos de Oro, to direct and write, because you wrote it and directed it, right? Yeah, I wrote, directed, and co-produced it. Um, that's a big question. Um, well, in 2018, so let's back up a bit. I was, uh, I had just finished uh, work uh, editing uh, uh, my second short film. It's called Just Lie Here. It's a short film thriller about a crazy Airbnb guest. And um, I finished that up. And in the process of editing that film, I was uh, actually in, deep and i mean deep 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 like neck deep in in writing another script it was a sci-fi script for a, a short film that i've been i mean planning for i don't know years um and i was i was already scouting locations i was starting to put a little team in my head together of, of who i wanted to work on this project and then my world kind of shifted a little bit my family went through an interesting experience in that um october 16th of 2018 i will never forget it uh my dad was hospitalized because he got really he had some, you know, to be honest with you, this day we still don't quite know what actually happened to him. It was a nervous system condition or a breakdown of some sort where he was effectively paralyzed in a hospital for a month and couldn't really do anything. His, his face was kind of like broken in half a little bit because, you know, one half of it couldn't really move. Um, and it sucked and it was heartbreaking. And, you know, this is a guy, my father, who 
is I mean, as I'm sure you know this, like the the older Mexican culture, like the you know the obsessive workaholic. He's a mechanic, so like this this is a guy who you know 12, 14 hours a day is outside working with his hands, getting dirty, chopping it up with his friends, just kind of living in that world, right? Just being so inundated Monday to Saturday, one day off, Sunday you know Sundays is only day off. Um, and I knew for me that what was hurting him the most wasn't his physical pain, um, which to be clear, it was very. I mean, it was. It was a lot. He was going through a lot. But what was hurting him the most, I knew, was it was the internal in that he wasn't outside. He wasn't, you know, being a provider. You know, there, there's a there's a lot to be said about that when, you know, the, it, your your work being stripped away from you. It, it's, it feels as if you're being stripped of your identity. You know, a lot of our identity, who we are, is tied up into what we do. Um, and my dad was stripped of that for a month and he was heartbroken. And it was like, I, I always tell people, it's like watching a lion in a cage that just couldn't get out and be a lion, right? What they do, what all, the only thing they know how to do. So I shifted course a bit. I go, okay, let me put, pump the brakes on, on this film that I was writing. And, and there's something here. There's something personal here that I want to tap into. And that eventually became the, the beginning of, of Manos de Oro and, and me putting that script together and starting to write and, you know, people always ask me, it's like, oh, you made a film about your dad. It's about your story and your life. And it's really not. It's about more or less the kind of person that my dad is. You know, for like, for example, in Mano Zoro, the main character, Sergio, he's an alcoholic. My dad is not an alcoholic. In the film, my dad, in the film, uh, Sergio. Good distinction to make. Just to be clear. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. The character has arthritis. My dad does not have arthritis. You know, so I, I took a lot of elements. Like, it borrows from the truth of, like, the kind of person and, and older generation of Mexican men that I grew up with and know, and, and that is my father. So that's what inspired it. And it was a long journey to get it to, you know, to happen. And just cause it was a, my most ambitious project, my most personal, I wanted to be right. And to bring it full circle, we wrapped our six day production of the film, October 16th of 2019, literally a year on the day that my dad got hospitalized. So it just, it was like very fairy tale ending in a way, but it was, uh, it was really special. And it's, it's been the, joy of my life I, I can't even begin to tell you how proud i am of all the work that other people did I, I just feel like i'm the beneficiary of a lot of wonderfully talented people and all their efforts on this film we'll get into this about what the, the film is about as well as that it's in black and white and in right. spanish yeah. And it reminded me of um, Roma. Big inspiration of mine. Alfonso Cuaron in that movie. I just, I love it so much. Really? Yeah. I mean, you can tell what I was able to see. You can tell that because, and Alfonso Cuaron was inspired by his own childhood, right? And it's right. it's even more powerful to to see the, the film and like be in La Roma in La Ciudad de México. And you see how the area is. And because it's very different from other parts of, that's uh, yeah. Mexico City, right? A, so that's really beautiful that that's what inspired Manos de Oro. So just carry us through what is yeah. what is the film about and what are some of the biggest themes of the film that you think will resonate with Latinx audiences? Absolutely. So Manos de Oro is the story of Sergio, a former mechanic who has arthritis in his hands and is no longer able to work. And, you know, the story follows his journey of uh, trying to just get that, get back the life of the good old days of him wanting to, to be a work be a worker, be a provider and and really just do the thing that he loved to do the most more than anything in the world. And you know, the, right at the beginning of the film, um, Sergio uh, has the opportunity to fix an old family friend's truck uh, 
knowing well and clear that he shouldn't be doing any physical labor because of his situation in his hands. He's in a lot of pain day in and day out. You know, the story follows him struggling with that arthritis and, and dealing with his hands not being the tools, you know, that they used to be in his glory days. Um, but more than anything, this is a story about a father-son relationship. This is a story about how that internal struggle and that um, that pain that he's going through and him suppressing and, and suppressing and suppressing his feelings and his emotions um, it's it's looking very clearly at the path of destruction around all the uh, around all the people that are near him and close to him, like his son Fernando that he lives with. And Fernando's is you know his son who works at the mechanic shop where he used to work at. And I always uh, you know there was a saying that I, I really clung on to while I was writing the script, and it sort of opened up what Manuzoto would be for me is that the most important thing at the beginning of the movie should be the least important thing by the end, and. Mm -hmm least important thing in the end should be the most important thing by the end. So let's break that down. In Manos Oro, the most important thing front center, right from the right from the beginning, is Sergio's hands, it's his condition, it's his ability not being able to work, him struggling with that. Um, but by the end, that's sort of pushed to the side a bit because really it's about him and his son Fernando coming to coming to terms with their own relationship and, and the biggest takeaways I would want a Latinx audience and really to be honest, anyone watching the story is that it's okay to ask for help, right? And and mental health being an incredibly important thing in our community. Um, also being very stigmatized because as I'm sure you know, in our community, in our culture, mental health is, I mean, unfortunately very, very stigmatized. At least the way I grew up certainly where anytime you would say words like anxiety, depression, bipolar, um, you get scoffed at and you're told to, as a, as a, as a man, work it off like you know you just need to sweat and it's just like it sucks and it's and it's it's vile and it's ugly because that's far that's that couldn't be further from the truth what, what i want this film to be more than anything is um is the beginning of, of a conversation to ask better questions of yourself and in turn be able to ask better questions of those around you so that be able to have a healthy honest relationship with your family and loved ones because that's okay too like they're not mutually exclusive like you can be a worker, you can be a provider, uh, regardless of who you are, and still have a family and still maintain those relationships. And you know, this film is in Spanish, and and it's it's about a Mexican American slice of my reality and what it is that I've kind of grown up with. But I'd like to say that I don't necessarily think you have to be a Spanish speaker to get the story. Whether you're you're African American, Asian American, um, you know, Caucasian, I think there there's a slice of truth in this story. Um, about the father-son relationship that I think can relate to any culture and any person um, watching it. Because we have these conversations a little more publicly, because social media has helped with this, like, opening up and starting these conversations, I think it's become a little less taboo. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really important, especially for, for parents, our parents, because with us, we've normalized it a little more, right? But sometimes, you know, our parents being 50 and older or something, you know, they might think like, okay, well, I'm already older than 50. I'm set in my ways. I don't need to go to therapy. I don't need to do this. And sometimes, you know, you're never too old to be going to therapy or seeking help. Or as you said, asking help is a very important step at any age with well, whatever you're going through. But I think, you know, it's interesting because I, I like to tell people that I, I feel that the generations of our grandparents, the generations of our parents, I think they're the last ones that still have that very real taboo about mental health. But I think what I what I love about you know the, the millennial culture and 
heck, I mean, even Gen Z culture, like they're they're normalizing a lot of that, like you said. And I think it's become a matter of, of bringing it up and having those hard conversations so that when, you know, whenever we have children, if we have children, generations after us, um, it just becomes a norm. And that taboo is stripped away. You know, all the beautiful things about our culture are there to stay and all the toxic, all the, the what we've known to be normal and what we've accepted as truth and reality for the longest, um, we can sort of funnel that into something a little more uh, progressive, something a little more um, useful for, for emotions and for relationships, because you're right, it's it's just been taboo for so long. And, and you know, like you said, especially with, with women, it's a lot more acceptable, but with men, it's it's seen as it's it's feminine, right? It's like, I don't talk about my feelings, I'm a man. Men don't cry, it's like, well, do you? Like, because I bet deep down, if I were to really like take a magnifying glass and look inside you, you're probably crumbled into, you know, into a million pieces on the inside, but it's because you refuse to ask for help, you refuse to go to therapy, and you refuse to do anything about what's happening internally. Everything else for you is just external, right? So, you know, to bring it back to Manos, um, that was, you know, part of the conversation that we wanted to have with people is that look at what look at what can happen if you don't do this, right? And then look at what happens when you do. And you know, there's a coming to terms at the end. I, obviously, I don't want to give anything away, but um, it's it's a message of hope and that it's, it, it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to accept your circumstance because at the end of the day, all you have are your friends and your family and they're going to be there with you like come hell or high water. Um, so if you can get that right and then mend those relationships while asking for help and taking care of yourself, like your inner truth, um, I think we'll be, a be we'll be all the better for it. Our culture will be all the better for it. A little while ago, my producer, Ariel, gave me this great idea to call this segment La Esquinita, The Corner. I'll be sharing some of my thoughts of the week. This was interesting. A girl, woman, girl and woman, (laughs) reached out to me this week asking me for advice on her career. She's younger than me and she's barely graduating undergrad, but she was asking me because I've worked in the field she's considering. Production. Now, she didn't study this in college, but she did dabble and do some internships. However, she's scared to actually make a career out of it because her parents are convinced that it will be a tough journey for her. In short, yes, it will be, no matter who you are. The film industry is not an easy career. Of course, every person has had a different journey, but if you want something predictable and safe, then it's not really the career path to take. But there is a lot of beauty to it, just as I speak to Merced about it as well. So, in short, I talked to her through my experiences all the way to today. And though I'm not completely a producer, I do still get to produce a little. But what I came to realize by the end of the conversation with her is that if you already know what you want to be doing, if you already feel it and know that it is who you are, then not doing it just delays the inevitable. A career is the greater chunk of the rest of our lives. So if you are certain that you want to follow a given path, then do it now, because chances are you'll end up doing it later anyways. Do you see this film as a sort of love letter to your father, to your family? That's interesting. Um, yes and no, because I would say it's a love letter to his situation and everything that he went through, because 
that's precisely why I did it. Like I said, I mean, I was inspired directly because of, of you know, us, my, us as a family having to go through that. Um, that can go one of two ways. Though. It can either go, wow, like this, we really needed to have this conversation. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that we are. And, and thank you for putting this to screen. The opposite end of the spectrum is, are you crazy? Like, why would you put, you know, all of this into a film? You know, we're not like that. It's like those words can mm. be had. Luckily, that hasn't been my experience. Um, my father's the only person in my family who hasn't seen the film because he refuses until he gets to watch it in a big theater. Um, but because of COVID, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So it might be a while. But I also think deep down, I just I feel like it might be like as if you were looking in the mirror a little bit, you know, and I don't know if he's ready for that. And I haven't told him that. I'm like, OK, Dad. OK, cool. You can you can wait for theater whenever you want. But I know that it's probably going to be quite emotional for him in a way. And, you know, he's not I mean, like I said, he's, he's one of those like old school Mexican guys who's just a, he's a mechanic, for God's sake. Like he's out in the sun all day. He's he's just, he's stiff and he's tough as nails. Um, but. I feel like this, if this moves him in a way, I think he might be afraid of that. So yes, it is a love letter, but at the same time, it's also a wake up call. Like, Hey, look at not just what we're going through as a family and look, look what's affected us, but it happens to everyone in our culture. It isn't just exclusive to just us. So I hope the message is universal all across the board. What would you say then, considering that, again, it's not a mere, an exact replica of the situation, but it was very close to home. Sure. What would you say was one of the hardest parts of directing this film? Oh, there's so much. I mean, this was the biggest production of my career, for sure, a six-day production. And it's like, it's. I like to tell people it's a little big movie and that it, it feels very intimate. And it is very personal and, and the way I shot it, it's very, you know, handheld, gritty, you know, reminiscent of the French New Wave um, with elements of, you know, the Italian neorealism movement. Um, so it felt like a very personal movie. The ones that I love, cinema that I aspire to, you know, want to achieve to make. Um, but it was big in scope because we had to, we had a lot of big set pieces and camera movements and, and prop trucks and it was just a lot to handle. It was a lot of stress, but I think the biggest thing for me, directing Manos Dodo was getting it right and have me doing an accurate reflection of what it is that I wanted to achieve. And that started right from the beginning, from the dialogue, it being in Spanish. I, this was my first movie in Spanish. I, I grew up speaking Spanish all my life. My family, we, we only speak Spanish here at home, but I knew I wanted to get that right. And in turn, I knew that I also needed actors who could play the parts and who could speak the Spanish the way I spoke it. Like, my family is from Coahuila. They speak a very like northern regio like uh, Spanish, right? Which is very different to what's you know traditional like uh, or you know more like Ciudad de Mexico, right? Um, it has like a sort of song and dance to it. It's it's a very interesting thing, and words are used that in other parts of Mexico aren't used. So I knew that much. I knew that okay, I, I need to find someone who can do it and do it well. And you know that was the beginning of me looking for Julio Cesar Cedillo, my my lead actor in the film. Um, who's, you know, been a part of Netflix's Narcos Mexico, Sicario, Cowboys and Aliens, Three Burials of Mercedes Estrada, like just so many awesome, awesome projects. But in my research, when my dad was sick, I saw him uh, on, uh, on Narcos. I was watching Narcos while my dad was in the hospital and I was like, wait, I know that guy. I've seen him in Sicario. I've seen him in all the other projects I mentioned, right? And he's from Durango. But I found out he's actually based in Fort Worth. Like he lives in Fort Worth. And I thought, oof. Here's my guy. Like, I think I found my guy. Fingers crossed that we can even so much as entertain that conversation. And anyway, I, long story short, I followed him on Instagram. 
He followed me back. Two days later, I sent him a message. Go, hey, Julio, thanks for the follow. Big fan. Listen, I have this story that I want to, you know, that I'm working on. I'm going to be directing this year. Just give me five minutes of your time. Five minutes. And if, uh, if it doesn't work out, then you'll never hear from me again. You'll go your way. I'll go mine. And right away, he sent me his number and said, call me. And I thought, okay, here we go. And yeah, we talked for like an hour and change that, that morning. And that was the beginning of our conversation. Just, I sent him the script. Talked about it, talked about the character. I, I rewrote a couple of things. We, we made changes to it. And then he agreed to do it. And it's all just been wild ever since because him being a part of this project, not only being an amazing actor, like he's he's phenomenal. That's that's that much is clear. But he's also so giving with his time and his resources because what happened is while he was shooting Narcos Mexico in, in Ciudad de Mexico last summer. Um, he was one of his co-stars, Carol Medina, who's, a, a, you know, he was in Narcos. He told him, hey, I'm going to be working on this short. We need a part. We need the son, the role for the son. I think you might be good for it. And he put me in touch with Kato. Um, I talked to his agent. Uh, we worked it all out. That was Kato. Check. I got my son. Okay, now I need my, my – there's like there's one role in the film that's English speaking. It's a, it's a, it's an older, you know, white guy that, that runs a body um, – um, uh, it's like a, a material shop. And that was a, uh, he was in No Country for Old Men. His name's Richard Jackson. He – was just a friend of Julio's from acting school and bam, now I have my cast. And then it just literally started to snowball after that. But really all that to say, because of all the wonderful people that were a part of this project, like I had some heavy hitters. Like I had, I mean, even now, like within post-production, just some awesome, awesome team members from music to sound to editing. That was the hardest thing is that like, okay, I've put all these people together. Now what? Like, I can't fumble the ball. Like, I have to, this hat, there's no room for error. I have to get it right because these people who are a part of these big multi-million dollar productions just said yes to me. Like, I can't fake it anymore. I, I got to get it right. Um, and that was a lot of pressure for me because I had never worked with actors of that caliber. I never worked with a team that big and, and with set pieces that enormous. So it was just me coming to terms with the fact that, okay, this is, this, you're going to do this. You're working with these heavy hitters, these cats. And it, I mean, it just, it was just such a pleasant experience. What I thought would be them kind of like looking down at me because I was a young director and didn't know, bright eyed, never really done a film this big before. It was the complete opposite. I mean, they gave me, they gave everything to me. They gave themselves to me. They trusted me. And I've never felt more like a director working with them. And I've never felt more like a director working on Manozoro. And I always tell people, this will be the dragon I'll be chasing for the rest of my life because if I can replicate so much as half of this experience in Manos on future projects, I'll be a happy guy. If you follow me on Instagram at here, you might have already seen that I recommend books. So I thought of giving you my recommendation of the week here on books or other cool stuff I might come across. This week, I'm recommending Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. On the last episode, I talked about his segment on the app Calm, and today about his new book. I didn't plan that. But I have to talk about his book. I started reading it and finished it quickly, because even though I'd already fallen in love with his acting and voice, who knew he was such a fantastic writer as well? He calls it his love letter to life, and he also says that it is not a memoir or an advice book. But I really loved his gems of wisdom. It's really a page-turner and easy read. I highlighted a lot of parts of the book and definitely recommend it to anyone and everyone. It's all about catching those green lights in life. Give it a read and let me know what you think. 
you can DM me directly at Andrea M. Here or at Ladenekis. What were you planning to say in those five minutes that you had with him that turned into an hour that you were so sure of and confident in? Well, I sent I sent Julio a, a synopsis of the film. Like, here's what it's about. It's like two, three sentences. And I think that piqued his interest enough to where he was at least entertaining the idea. Julio has since gone on and told me that, like, he does not do short films because he gets, I mean, I don't think he'll have any problem with me saying this, but he gets reached out to all the time by young up-and-coming directors or people that have a passion project and they want to do it. And um, he just said yes. And, I mean, I, I can't account it in any other way than just he trusted me and had, like, a feeling in me that, I guess he saw something in me. I can't calculate that there there's really no telling why he said yes but you know i from what he's told me he liked the story he he liked me as a person and he believed in my vision and again that was just the beginning of the conversation but i i'm just so lucky because he could have just said no and then what then what manos what what, what would have manos been it would have been something entirely different and i i just i can't imagine any world or reality where manos isn't what it what it eventually became um, but, you know, Julio and I, we've we become really good friends ever since. Like, it, it's it's been a blast to get to know him, get to know his family. Um, I was just at his house a couple weeks ago. We were uh, catching up. And uh, it's nice because I know that this is the beginning. This is only the beginning for us. I know that him and I will be collaborating on many other projects in the future. I know that the kind of projects that I want to do, I think more than anything, Manos Zoto's taught me two things. Is that, number one, like... In the behind-the-scenes documentary that Alfonso Cuaron did for Manu, for, for, Manu, for Roma, um, he says um, he would dare to say that Roma is the first movie he's actually truly made because it's the kind of cinema that he aspires to keep making. And I feel that for me internally for Manu Zoro because I think, wow, like this really truly is the first film where I feel like I actually, you know, was achieving something more than just... Uh, uh, just making content for the sake of making content. Like I was being personal, I was being real and authentic. And I think I found my voice in a lot of way because of it. So it's taught me two things. Number one, I want to keep making, I want to keep making personal stories like this. I want to tap into my truth, my reality, my, my observations of the world and put that to screen, write it, direct it, produce it. Number two, I want to make projects that are cinematic in a way that, you know, I, I grew up in the school of thought where, talk, 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 dialogue was snappy and cool and Aaron Sorkin from the West Wing and Social Network, like that was my hero. I mean, and he still is, but there's something very much cinematic about just shutting up. And that was my biggest thing for Manozoro. It's like, Merced, just shut up. Like, don't, 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 don't do the talking. Just cut it out. Let the actor just fill the space. Little vignettes, small moments. Just show them in isolation. Show them being real people. And I think that in turn made it cinematic. And I want to just keep doing that. And I found that through Manozoro. And now I'm just like, all right, I can't wait to get through the next one because I want to make one just like that. And then after, and then after, and then after, and, and hopefully make a career out of that. So how is Manozoro doing right now? Tell me, tell me about that. That's a good question. So we finished the film, we finished editing it um, in mid mid September I'd say like was when we really put a bow on everything I just finished the final surround sound mix in Austin like two three weeks ago so I mean we're still kind of working on things um but in its current form right now we're in the process of submitting the film festivals all around the world like I mean everywhere 
um, Berlin in, in you know, Germany, um, Sundance, which we'll hear back from in December, South by Southwest, all the bigger film festivals. Um, the one acceptance we've gotten so far, though, and this is you know pretty cool for us, is that it got into HBO's Latinx short film competition, where basically um, it happens concurrently with the official Latino Film and Arts Festival in, in Palm Desert, California. It'll be virtual this year, obviously, because of COVID, but... Um, It'll be basically a competition of a hundred different uh, Latinx short films um, from Latinx filmmakers, creators, or, or Latinx themes and subjects. And we'll compete for one of three spots for a chance to stream on HBO and HBO Max, HBO Go, and all those other platforms. So, uh, I mean, that'll be crazy. Like if we, you know, get that opportunity, but you know, that isn't the be all end all. Like if, if it happens, it's great. Um, I just want people to see it and I want it to resonate and, and hopefully screen in as many places as possible. Um, but for us, you know, it's interesting because this is a long short film. Manozoro is 33 and a half minutes long. By all standards, that is a insanely long short film. The sweet spot typically for film festivals is anywhere from 12 to 15 minutes. We're like double that and then some. So I knew I was, I knew we were running a risk uh, by making a long short film. It's going to be an uphill battle for us. But the thing is, in order to get into one of those festivals to be a, as a long short film, you don't just have to be good. You have to be, I mean, a, a, a masterpiece with a capital M. And I'm not saying that we are. I, I refuse to say that. I, I, I don't like speaking on those terms. I, that's not for me to say. But I, I will tell you, I feel confident that it'll find a home, specifically somewhere in Europe, I hope, just because in Europe, they traditionally program more uh, longer lengths or from medium length is what they call them, right? So. All that to say, we'll see. I don't know what happened. I don't know what's going to happen. But um, right now, it's it's the HBO Latinx Short Film Competition, the last weekend of November, so in a month. Um, and we'll see what happens with that. And sometime next year, I'll be releasing our trailer. We've already cut it and edited it. Um, our poster designer, this I haven't really told anyone, but I guess I'll, I'll share it with you. But um, our poster designer, her name's Akiko. She's designed posters for some of the biggest films like on planet Earth. She's, I would venture to say, if she hears this, she'll probably, I don't know if she'll agree, but she's probably the most in-demand poster designer on planet Earth. I got that through Julio. Julio was a wonderful connection to put us, you know, to, to have a conversation. And we did. And she did an amazing poster for us. I mean, I, it's a piece of art that you want to hang. I have a poster because I'm looking at it right now on my wall. It's beautiful. Um, I'm just so excited to share that because she's worked on, I mean, the movie, she worked on a poster for the movie, her portrait of a lady on fire. Um, just so many amazing movies and to have her eye association work on Manozoro and give us her artwork, her, her talents. I'm just so, so lucky. I don't know how I got here, but that'll be sometime next year that we'll release it. So it'll be fun. You can't watch Manozoro yet, but you will soon. And when it is ready, we'll make sure to let you know on Latinx. Check it out. Watch it. I promise you that it'll be worth your time. In the meantime, you can follow Manos de Oro on social media at Manos de Oro Film, or you can follow the talented Merced at Merced Elizondo. You can also watch the behind-the-scenes featurette on their social media. There's a link to all of this on the description of the episode. This is to Latinx filmmakers and any really filmmaker of color that is, is listening to this or watching this. Um, Tell your story and make it happen and make it relatable because what the proudest, one of the proudest elements of Manozoro for me is that the fact that, and I mentioned this to you, is that 
you don't have to be Asian American or, or you can be African American, Asian American, you can be whatever culture, you can speak whatever language and read the subtitles or not and understand what this story is because it's a human story. So I would just tell anyone listening, tell those stories and make them relatable in the same way that a Steven Spielberg movie or a David Fincher movie or a Stanley Kubrick movie is relatable to us. Make our stories relatable, make them human because they are. They're as much valid as any other story on the planet. Um, do that. And then I just, I feel like all the, our, our industry and our, our culture of cinema is just going to be all the better for it. So that'd be my final parting thought because that's the kind of film that I want to keep making. You know, we're not just our, the color of our skin or the language we speak. We're more than that. Like we're, we're, we have stories that are human that you, you everyone can relate to. Anyone on the planet, I want to see those stories be told. I want to see that on screen. And if I can impart any wisdom on anyone, then I don't have much. But if it's anything at all, it's that. Just tell your stories, man. Make them relatable. Make them human so that our industry can, can benefit from, you know, the perspectives of many, you know. You know, the Latino experience in cinema and in film and television has been mostly deduced to either, I mean, for, I guess for the most part, like the Chicano, like L.A. Cholo story, right? And that I hate seeing that because we're so much more than that, dude. Like that, we have Latinos in Kansas, we have Latinos in New York, in Texas. Like we have different stories to just that. So when people think of Latinos in cinema, they think of like the the ragtag L.A. like family trying to make it, like wearing wearing you know the, the the muscle shirts, and it's just like we're so much more than that. We can be more. We can be better. Let's do better. Let's tell the real stories out there that that are uh, on the same level of any other filmmaker that's of any other race. Because I think we can, and our, our culture's capable of that. I know we are. So guys, as I always say, make sure to support your communities. It doesn't matter what you choose to advocate for. Just go out there and help. Connect and inspire others to do the same. Thank you for listening and supporting Ladnickies. We've loved seeing the growth and engagement on our platforms. Remember to check out additional information about this episode in the description. Lastly, support us by downloading our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can stay up to date. And join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Ladnickies. Reach out and let me know what's important to you. I'd love to hear what you have to say. <laughs>